This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 30th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has effectively ended racial preferences in higher education admissions, but that's not the end of litigation in this area. Anastasia Bowden, director of the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, details the two cases that led the court to bring an end to affirmative action in college admissions. Well, in typical Chief Justice Roberts fashion, he overruled those prior cases called Bakke and Gruder without explicitly overruling them. It's pretty clear that racial preferences in higher education are dead, even though that's not actually what the chief justice said. He said that the universities were not abiding by the safeguards that ensured that colleges were abiding by the Equal Protection Clause. So, for example, the previous Supreme Court decisions had said that you can use race as a plus factor but not a quota. And it said that you could use race so long as you weren't relying on stereotypes and that you could use race so long as there was an end date in the future. And Chief Justice Roberts said, well, none of those qualities apply here. It's not just a plus factor. It's an outright quota. It relies on stereotypes because the colleges are assuming just by virtue of being of a different race that these people are bringing something different to the table. So it's making a a stereotype based on being of a different race. And Basically, there's no end in sight. This is outright racial balancing that's going to continue perpetually. But it's hard to see how a college could ever abide by any of that criteria in the future, given that, you know, this type of stuff is inherently stereotypical and and it will always, you know, be be a outright balance. And so essentially, I think the the upshot is that racial preferences in higher education are no more. Now, let's understand what happened here. Jackson recused in the Harvard case, but she wrote a very strong dissent in the UNC case. Uh, What did the dissenters rely on in uh, making their claims that racial preferences should not be wholesale eliminated in higher education? Well, the original justification for allowing racial preferences was that the court was going to allow universities to pursue the benefits that come from a diverse student body. But the dissenters say there's another reason why this should be allowed, and that's remedying societal discrimination. And Justice Jackson says that, you know, our society is so uh, permeated with discrimination and that the legacy of discrimination is still with us so palpably that, that the colleges are engaging in a proper remedial measure. And he, she, and Justice Thomas had quite a back and forth about this, where I think Justice Thomas really dismantles this sort of pernicious assumption that every single member of certain races are being discriminated against at all times, necessitating remedial measures. In watching news coverage about this, you know, the concern was always placed on the the concern given this outcome. The concern was placed on the people who might not be accepted in the future who otherwise would be and how this is disadvantaging those people. And and for some people, that's clearly true. But for every seat at a university, there's someone else who then does not get that seat if somebody who's would be advantaged by this program is no longer advantaged by this program. So who tended to be the people who lost out in these decisions that universities until now could make? 
Well, the data showed that Asian Americans were primarily being discriminated against for the benefit of other races. And so there's, again, this back and forth between Justice Jackson and both the majority opinion and Justice Thomas, where Justice Jackson is trying to sort of downplay the discrimination going on, saying, well, it's not having that big of an effect. It's not kicking that many people out. And the majority says, well, it's a zero-sum game. If you're going to preference some people, there's automatically going to be losers. And in fact, some of the statistics were really jarring. They showed that for some people, their race was just as important to Harvard as scoring a nearly perfect SAT score. So that's the that's how big of an emphasis Harvard was putting on race alone and how much it was disadvantaging Asian applicants. So going forward, presumably universities have been preparing for this moment. What does that look like in terms of compliance with the terms of the law? Do we then do we now have to enter a world in which schools are actively attempting not to engage in some sort of racial preference, or is it have we are is is it enough to say we're no longer having official programs at our school to specifically engage in these kinds of preferences? There's a a couple answers to that. One is that Chief Justice Roberts left the door open a little bit because at the end of his opinion, he says even though you can't outright use race as a factor, people can still write about their racial experiences in their essays, and colleges can take that into account, which seems fine if it's if if you know the university is not using race alone, but is just considering the person's sort of holistic life story and how race might have affected them in particular. But the problem is we might see colleges use this now as a new way to to get the balance that they want in the student body. And we also might see that colleges just drive their discrimination further underground. They just make it more difficult to see, more difficult to find out. Or they start using proxies for race, as we right now see in the K through 12 context, where certain public elementary and high schools are throwing out race-neutral criteria and using proxies for race. So I don't think we've seen the end of this litigation, even though this was a a really watershed moment in getting rid of the uh, diversity rationale for racial preferences. I think universities might still seek to do the same thing, and there'll be a case at the court in the future. So I'm trying to imagine how a university might do this. Facially neutral, but lean much more heavily into people who are economically disadvantaged in an attempt, a blunt attempt, to capture many of the same students that they might have otherwise not been able to accept for whatever reason. Right. They can lean on socioeconomic status. They can use on geography quotas where they say, oh, we're just going to draw a certain amount of people from certain parts of the state or the city or the country. And they may be doing it very intentionally, as has been shown that schools have been doing in the K-12 context, to get a certain racial balance. And and once again, in that context as well, it was shown that the people who lose out are Asian applicants. And it's, you know, that unfortunately, they are individuals who also have not had, they have a sordid history in this country when it comes to discrimination that they've faced. And so we'll see, we'll see if that continues. Are there implications for K-12? I mean, I think this shows where the Supreme Court is at in terms of the Equal Protection Clause, that there's never a benign reason for discrimination, that the Constitution requires colorblindness, which there was still apparently in 2023 a debate over that, and that 
courts are going to be really skeptical of of any attempts to to use race or allegations of racial preferences. But the diversity rationale has never been extended to the K through 12 context to begin with. So I don't know that there's any direct implications. It's more just that I think we get a little insight into where the justice's minds are if a case were to come up in that context. These cases were about the sort of combined impacts of the 14th Amendment and federal civil rights law. What are the odds that Congress, in order to get some of those benefits back that universities may then bestow, what are the odds that the Congress would want to make a change? Or is that even technically possible? I suppose it could rewrite the civil rights laws, but at present, the Civil Rights Act has been interpreted to be coextensive with the 14th Amendment. So unless you rewrite the statute to say differently, right now there's there's nothing that can be done. Anastasia Bowden directs the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>